I believe this is the last um, lunch talk of the year. So I appreciate all of you coming. We've had a great season this year. We've had a lot of talks, and we've left a really good one for the end. So I'm very glad that Jessica Chen Weiss could join us. She's an assistant professor of political science and a research fellow at the Macmillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale University. She teaches courses on Chinese foreign policy, uh, state society relations in post-Mao China, and anti-Americanism in world politics. Her research interests include Chinese politics, obviously, and international relations, nationalism and social protest, which we're going to hear some about today. Uh, and her research has been supported by the National Science Foundation, the Princeton Harvard China and the World Program, the Bradley Foundation, Fulbright Hayes, and it goes on. She earned her PhD in 2008 in political science from the University of California at San Diego and won the 2009 American Political Science Association Helen Dwight Reed Award for the best dissertation in international relations. Uh, today she's going to talk about powerful patriots, and it's a great pleasure to have you here, Jessica. Welcome. Thank you so much, Rick. Thank you all very much for being here, and thank you to Mershon and the East Asian Studies Center for having me here. It's really a great honor, um, and I hope this is an appropriate send-off for the summer. Um, so I'm going to dive right in. This is um, sort of a part of a larger book manuscript project, which is currently in progress, so I really uh, look forward to your feedback um, at the end of the presentation as I go forward and uh, try to make this an even better uh, manuscript. The title of my talk is Powerful Patriots, uh, Nationalism, Diplomacy, and the Strategic Logic of Anti-Foreign Protest in China. And I'd like to begin with the puzzle which first sparked my interest uh, in the topic, which is that in 1999, if you'll recall, the United States bombed the Chinese embassy during a NATO airstrike in Belgrade. And following that airstrike, the Chinese government allowed and even encouraged students and workers and others to take to the streets, uh, eventually surrounding uh, the U.S. embassy in Beijing and dozens of other cities across China. But by contrast, in 2001, when a U.S. spy plane and a Chinese fighter jet collided over the South China Sea, the Chinese government acted to prevent protests. They told students to stay inside their campuses, and the official media were instructed to turn down their rhetoric in covering the incident. Similar variation can be seen in China's relations with Japan, and perhaps most puzzling is the issue of Taiwan, which Chinese nationalists care the most about, yet there have been, to date, no protests over this explosive issue. In the literature and in the popular press, there are two common explanations uh, typically given for why uh, we see these protests. One is that they're ginned up or manufactured by an authoritarian government trying to find an external scapegoat uh, for domestic grievances, a way of uh, diverting uh, grievances that would otherwise potentially target the regime itself. A second common explanation is that the government is uh, unable or unwilling to prevent these protests. And in fact, these occur more as the spontaneous eruption of legitimate grievances amongst the public against uh, a foreign provocation or insult. Now, while both of these explanations I get, get a lot of it right, uh, I have problems with them because while they explain protests that occur, they have difficulty explaining those protests that were prevented or nipped in the bud before they could erupt into the streets. To explain this variation, then, I offer a potentially uh, counterintuitive argument which combines insights from both of these two perspectives, which is that 
autocrats uh, can gain international benefits by allowing nationalist protests. There is an element uh, of government complicity in these protests, but neither are they completely in charge of the situation. They're not manufactured, but rather orchestrated, that they uh, have a role in allowing them to occur, but once they spill out into the streets, that even an authoritarian government like China does not have perfect control over the target or the size of these protests, which could fundamentally get out of hand and turn against the government itself. In a nutshell, the argument that I make is that nationalist protests, nationalist street protests, are a way for authoritarian governments like China's to reveal information about their preferences, demonstrating resolve, and as a way of tying their hands in international bargaining. The idea is that without protests, a government like China has a relatively free hand to set foreign policy, but with protests in the streets, mobs at the gates, even autocrats like China's, which are, don't face electoral uh, opposition, nonetheless are um, bound domestically to take a tough uh, line on foreign policy, and thus um, commitments that they make to sort of relatively <coughs> firm or hawkish bargaining stances with international negotiators, then these are then more credible as a result of protests in the streets. The argument uh, draws inspiration from the literature on the democratic peace, which in recent years has moved away from explaining the absence of war amongst democracies and more toward relations between democracies and autocracies. And by and large, this literature has found that democracies have all sorts of advantages over their authoritarian counterparts, whether it's waging war or uh, credibly committing to international cooperation, and the list goes on and on. Most recently, uh, scholars like uh, Jim Fearon have suggested that audience costs are also uh, in the democratic advantage camp, that democratic leaders, because they face costs uh, of backing away from threats that they make publicly, are better able to signal resolve and tie their hands. Here, I suggest that autocrats like China have an analogous mechanism in the form of nationalist street protests that allows them to, again, reveal information about their domestic and international preferences and also to tie their hands, to, to uh, constrict the set of international bargains that they're willing to accept. So if you imagine a little bit more concretely a dictator and a Democrat sitting down to negotiate at the bargaining table. The traditional view is that the Democrat can say, look, Congress has moved, the people have spoken, I'm pinned. If we're going to reach a deal, you're going to have to back down. And in the literature, basically the autocrat is feckless. He has no ability to uh, use that domestic card uh, to sit, come back and say, look, uh, I too face domestic constraints. With nationalist protests, however, the autocrat can then come back and say to the Democrat, well, you may have Congress, uh, but I have mobs. So if we're going to reach a deal, you, the Democrat, uh, have to back down. So I suggest that nationalist protests are a way for Democrats to level the playing field. This may not give them an absolute advantage over democracies, but this is one way in which they can similarly use domestic politics as leverage in international bargaining. The outline of the talk will proceed as follows. First, I'll set up the theory, uh, identify the core mechanisms driving uh, the logic, and then uh, present a series of predictions that I'll then test in the context of 
um, some evidence from drawn from the case of China, which I know best and have done uh, a significant amount of field research in. In particular, I'll demonstrate that China, by allowing anti-Japanese protests in 2005, was able to get leverage on the critical issue of Japan's bid for membership as a permanent, uh, permanent seat on the UN Security Council. I'll then illustrate via a comparison of anti-Japanese protests in China and Hong Kong uh, what we might expect uh, if China were uh, to become more democratic, what this will look like down the road. So in sum, uh, the literature on international bargaining suggests that states with private information face difficulties uh, revealing information credibly about their preferences. This makes it difficult um, for states to uh, realize uh, agreements. And here, the literature as early as uh, Schelling has suggested that having a domestic veto point uh, makes it better or easier uh, for states to drive a hard bargain at the international table. And recently, the literature on audience costs suggests that indeed, uh, by going public, leaders can uh, signal resolve, um, show that they feel very strongly about an issue because they've generated these um, public or electoral costs of backing away from these threats if they fail to uh, fulfill them. That's putting the national honor or the credibility of the, uh, the president's uh, reputation on the line, uh, the government is able to generate uh, bargaining leverage through this um, escalatory tactic. So here I suggest that nationalist protests are akin to going public because the government, one, signals that it really cares about this issue because it's willing to allow these protests that might turn against the regime. And secondly, with protests in the streets, the government effectively ties its hands uh, by making it costly for the government to pursue diplomatic compromise. And here these are two distinct mechanisms. One is the role of signaling, of revealing information about the autocrats' preferences, the public's um, position on the international dispute, but also this tying hands mechanism, which are distinct. And so you can take or leave uh, either one of them. They, don't, they work separately. One is more akin to uh, straightforward signaling where you're revealing information, private information. And the second is more akin to audience costs, this idea that by allowing or by taking certain actions, you change the payoffs down the road, making it more attractive for you to take a tough or hawkish bargaining stance, um, even though you still are able to back down. It's not like your hands are literally tied behind your back. Just that the relative uh, incentive to take one action over the other um, is sort of effectively tying your hands. More fundamentally, this is uh, a two-level game, where at the domestic level, the authoritarian government interacts with its domestic public, deciding, uh, calculating the risks and benefits of allowing protests into the streets. And at the second level, the authoritarian government is negotiating with a foreign government, uh, in this case, China, with uh, many others. So the two key features uh, are, one, the risk that protests get out of hand. This is akin to the threat that leaves something to chance in Schelling's formulation. Of course, uh, Schelling is talking about the threat of mutually assured destruction, that um, by going to the brink, you could uh, create the risk of a nuclear catastrophe. Here, the risk is not of mutually assured destruction, but of domestically assured destruction. This is a one-sided risk that by going uh, up to the brink, the government is demonstrating that it is so tough 
and so resolved with this particular issue that it's willing to uh, go to the brink, even if it doesn't affect uh, the foreign government. Second, uh, it rests upon the escalating cost of suppression. This is the idea that protests, once begun, are more costly for the government to rein in than uh, at the initial time period. The idea that nipping protests in the bud, whether by detaining activists before uh, they can go out onto the streets the night before, uh, or by dispersing them as soon as they gather, these costs are much less for the authoritarian government than once protests have spread to multiple cities uh, and, and so forth. So as I've noted here, these are distinct. Uh, one, the risk of losing control is more about this signaling idea of revealing information, whereas the costs of suppression are more about this tying hands or audience costs uh, phenomenon. So I'll go through these each in turn. First, the risk of losing control. Protests in an authoritarian context are generically risky, even if they aren't <coughs> nationalist. By uh, once protesters are in the streets, uh, these protests may set off a, a chain reaction, uh, causing an information cascade or demonstrating uh, to the public at large that protesting is safe and maybe even acceptable, such that overnight um, protesters could fill the streets in ways that were unimaginable. Uh, the day before. Second, by having protesters in the streets, those very people share information amongst themselves. Perhaps they um, it swap uh, cell phone numbers. Uh, they've made networks. They're beginning to mobilize resources that could be used uh, over other issue areas, even if they uh, aren't the initial target and perhaps a nationalist target. Finally, once protesters are in the streets, those within the elite may see uh, an incentive or an opportunity to join hands with the protesters and perhaps use these crowds as a way to uh, gain advantage within the competition amongst elites. This then leads, could lead potentially to the downfall of the regime. If these are all the reasons that protests are generally risky in authoritarian regimes, I suggest that nationalist protests are particularly risky uh, in an authoritarian context, um, precisely because they speak to sort of the broader base, that they're not a particularistic grievance, but rather uh, they appeal to a whole array of uh, diverse groups that might want to challenge the regime. And they may challenge uh, sort of the prevailing myths that uh, underpin the regime's uh, sort of core legitimacy. The second mechanism rests upon the escalating costs of suppression the idea that protests are easier to repress initially than they are once they've uh, grown in momentum, um, size, or uh, sort of geographic extent. And this is basically a physical story, that it's easier to repress a small group of protesters than it is to uh, bring in the tanks uh, and the, the riot police once they've um, sort of really unleashed the floodgates. It's easier, it takes less force to keep the gates closed than it is to close the floodgates once they've uh, been opened. And here, um, I make uh, a simplifying assumption about the nature of protest, which is that even though there may be people in the crowd who are there really just to have fun, uh, to experience what it's like to protest in an authoritarian context, there are still people in the crowd uh, who will not go home unless they are satisfied, uh, whether that uh, is a domestic issue or whether it's a foreign policy issue. Psychologically, uh, those who are in the streets, uh, even if they were only there to have fun, may be more attached to the right to protest once they've actually experienced it uh, than they were before when it was just an abstract concept. 
And then finally, uh, from an international and domestic reputational standpoint, uh, it's more costly for the government uh, to bring out the tanks uh, once uh, the cameras are filming. Uh, the newspapers have covered the protests in the central square, which is to say that it's much uh, less reputationally costly to sort of dissuade the activists on the night before the protest uh, than it is uh, once the, you know, the full eye of the public, internationally and domestically, is on the, d- the government's actions. These are not just hypothetical risks and costs, at least in the Chinese case. Uh, internal police reports that I was able to obtain suggest that, indeed, uh, some of these mechanisms are at play. Uh, one police report suggested that during mass incidents, which is their code for protests in China, emotions can spread from person to person uh, via suggestion and mimicry. This illustrates the potential for protests to generate further uh, risks of getting out of hand. And secondly, that once emotions have passed a critical level, they can spill over, leading to out-of-control behavior. And these are not just hypothetical, uh, but experiences that the Chinese government has recently learned. In one chapter of my book manuscript, I suggest that the 1989 pro-democracy protests at Tiananmen Square began uh, in a series of anti-Japanese protests in the fall of 1985. These protests in 1985, which were uh, targeted at a Japanese prime minister visiting Yasukuni Shrine, at first appeared to have official government backing, but then over the sort of succeeding several months sort of took on a life of their own, spreading to uh, several cities, and ultimately, though they were curtailed, generating uh, disenchantment amongst those nationalist (coughs) protesters with the government's sort of overt manipulation, first letting the protesters into the streets. In fact, they paraded around Tiananmen Square with the sort of complicit acceptance of the government, but then were told uh, to stay at home on a key uh, anniversary. Indeed, I think these protests provided sort of a protective veil for anti-regime dissent to mobilize and... Uh, once it became clear that the government only wanted the protesters to go so far and then it was no longer acceptable, the government, uh, in fact, created more disenchantment that other dissidents could then use to mobilize a challenge to the regime, uh, first in 1986 and then ultimately in 1989. This was then the greatest challenge to the Chinese government's legitimacy in the post-1949 period. And even though the regime did not fall, two general secretaries of the Communist Party uh, were dismissed for their uh, sort of failure to handle these protests effectively. And it's only in the context of these protests and this linkage between an anti-foreign protest and an anti-regime protest that the following quotation by uh, the late Chinese leader Deng Xiaoping makes sense. And here he says that, as he was speaking to um, some Japanese visiting officials, that reactions among students are especially strong. And if difficult problems were to appear still further in China's relations with Japan, it will become impossible to explain them to the people. It will become impossible to control them. And I want you, Japan, to understand this position that we're in, sort of between a rock and a hard place. Given uh, these domestic grievances, this genuine outrage amongst the students at your Uh, behavior, uh, you need to understand the position that we are in. We can't explain this to the people, so you, Japan, need to uh, cut us some slack. Throw us a bone. So what does this leave us then with the two mechanisms? The strategic logic that I'm proposing here is one, 
that the willingness to allow risky protests uh, signals to foreign audiences that the Chinese government uh, is very resolved over the issue, that it cares so much about the international dispute at stake that it's willing to allow these protests that could, in fact, gain momentum and turn against the regime itself. Secondly, protests, uh, as they escalate, generate costs of backing down and making diplomatic compromises, which then effectively tie the hands of the government. Which is, again, not to say that they couldn't bring the tanks in, but why bring in the tanks when you can take a tough stance on foreign policy, placate your domestic audience, and force the foreign side to make concessions? Of course, uh, given strategic interaction, this tactic will not always work. In fact, it could uh, backfire. But there's a selection uh, process which suggests that the government is likely to allow them when they're likely to be effective, which is to say when the foreign government isn't going to counter-escalate. Of course, this is probabilistically true. Uh, like all escalatory tactics, they could result in the foreign side taking uh, a stronger stance in result. And uh, as a result, what we're likely to see is the government taking a hawkish stance, but leading to the deterioration of relations rather than concessions. So to be a little bit more concrete, uh, what this looks like uh, in the context of Chinese foreign policy is that without protests, Autocrats like China are viewed as having a relatively free hand to set uh, foreign policy, though there may be dissent uh, amongst bloggers or a handful of independent newspapers. It's hard for foreigners to estimate the extent to which there is popular opposition uh, to the government's policies and uh, to a hawkish stance. Thus, when Chinese diplomats say to foreigners that they meet, look, you're hurting the feelings of 1.3 billion Chinese people, it's very easy for foreigners to dismiss this as just so much cheap talk. But with protests, these uh, feelings actually become apparent. And it's apparent to foreigners that the government is running this risk of uh, one, having to bring out the tanks, which is not good uh, from anybody's perspective, um, but that the government is really uh, running a risk to its own stability, even if it's on the margin, and that the costs of then international compromise of uh, sort of a friendly, uh, cooperative relationship, thus become very visible and costly. In order to uh, pursue a diplomatic compromise, the Chinese government would have to first clear the streets, uh, or they can uh, take a hawkish position, in which case they've satisfied the protesters uh, and sort of avoided the domestic costs, putting the burden of concession or conciliation uh, onto the foreign side. This then leads me to make uh, three predictions. First is that as an effective bargaining tactic, anti-foreign <laughs> protests should lead to a more favorable international bargain uh, for the side that's having the protests. Of course, this is, again, uh, subject to issues of strategic interaction. And it may, in fact, fail with the Chinese government taking a hawkish position to satisfy the protesters, but not getting any concessions from the international side, just leading to sort of continuing escalation. Second, even if we don't see those concessions, we nevertheless uh, should expect the Chinese government to react uh, and placate the protesters by taking this hardline uh, bargaining stance. Finally, uh, because protests are risky, we should only see them when uh, the government has uh, international interest uh, in allowing these, that there's some benefit uh, to be gained from having them. Uh, and typically, uh, this will be happen sort of before or during negotiations rather than afterwards. Because once an agreement has been reached, 
internationally, protests far from generating additional bargaining leverage are more likely to actually spoil uh, the implementation of the agreement. To evaluate uh, these predictions, I turn to uh, a variety of evidence that I've collected in the Chinese case, um, the, primarily in the form of case studies. The one I'll present today is the case of the 2005 anti-Japanese protests and the issue of UN Security Council reform. A second case, uh, which is in the book manuscript, looks at this comparison uh, that I started the talk with of the 1999 embassy bombing, why protests were allowed in that case, but prevented in 2001 after the EP3 incident. A third case looks at the connections between these anti-foreign protests and anti-government protests as uh, the example of the 85 to 89 um, progression uh, illustrates. And then the issue of Taiwan. Why is it that over this uh, issue that nationalists care so much about, why haven't there been uh, any nationalist protests allowed to date? I've done this, uh, I've done something that uh, no others who have looked at nationalist protests in China, which is to collect that data systematically uh, over the period 1978 to 2008. Uh, and I've also looked at um, both newspaper and internet uh, commentary uh, analyzing the content of these. This data was uh, gathered over more than uh, 12 months in China. Uh, I talked to a variety of people, everything from intellectuals to officials, activists, uh, as well as some interviews in Tokyo and Washington to get a sense of how these were perceived uh, by the foreign governments. Um, this uh, picture of talking to some activists at the Marco Polo Bridge, uh, which uh, is an important date uh, and a uh, symbol of China's resistance against Japan. Uh, this was actually not a particularly effective strategy. Uh, after this, uh, maybe two minutes after this picture was taken, uh, some policemen came up to m and interviewed me. Um, but an activist was kind enough to share this picture with me and as we talked over lattes at Starbucks afterwards. <laughs> so this case study that I want to uh, illustrate um, the ways in which anti-foreign protests, nationalist protests in China, are able to give the government leverage that it would not otherwise have had. And in the spring of 2005, negotiations over the expansion of the UN Security Council, particularly uh, permanent membership, uh, was on the table and really came to a head. And these negotiations had uh, really sort of revived, been going on for many years, but uh, really gained momentum in the fall of 2004 and came to a head in, in 2005. In particular, four countries, Japan, Germany, Brazil, and India, uh, sought permanent membership as the G4, the group of four, uh, but of course faced a lot of resistance uh, from around the world. And this is a, a very complex uh, negotiation, um, perhaps not the most fitting, but uh, is certainly an important case. And I want to focus on the actions of three players, in particular China, Japan, uh, and also the United States. Now here, you might ask, well, what was the negotiation about China as a permanent member of the UN Security Council, as veto power as such? Uh, why was there even a question that Japan would uh, succeed in its bid uh, for permanent membership? Well, here China has historically been very reluctant to use uh, its solo veto. Uh, and really, its objective here was to avoid the issue even being put to a vote, to head off, uh, a, head off uh, a situation in which 
Um, the issue would go before the General Assembly, potentially receiving <coughs> two-thirds support, and then China being put in this very difficult position of, one, using the solo veto, which it had long criticized as a tool of hegemony, and then, second, uh, looking very bad in front of uh, the developing nations uh, that had supported uh, the resolution. China, of course, trying to seem like a champion of the developing world uh, as it's trying to improve relations, um, particularly with Brazil and India. So China's objective was to block this from uh, going forward, to avoid having to use the solo veto. And particularly with uh, the United States, the question was, even if the United States didn't really support uh, this whole package deal, how is it that China could sort of force the burden, uh, sort of the the public costs of opposing this uh, resolution, to maybe share the burden more broadly? Because for a long time, the United States had essentially said, we support Japan, but we don't want to, you know, we don't really want these other uh, countries to be on it. That was, that's effectively the United States' position. Um, but publicly, the United States was very reluctant to say that. They would only say, we support Japan, we support Japan. So in the end, what China was able to do, one was to get concessions from Japan uh, over history issues to get an apology. Um, but vis-a-vis -vis the United States, effectively China was able to get the United States to come around to take a more public stance in slowing down uh, this momentum for reform and ultimately um, sort of reaching a joint agreement uh, to oppose the G4 proposal. So what I'll do in the case study is look first at the uh, ex-ante positions on UN Security Council reform, show you what the anti-Japanese protests looked like, and then uh, go through the ex-post positions on UN Security Council reform, again, trying to convince you that these protests made a difference. So before the protests, uh, in the fall of 2004, in the spring of 2005, the Chinese government uh, initially took a rather sympathetic, uh, or at least sort of neutral stance on uh, Japan's bid for uh, UN Security Council membership. And this is sort of a public lip service to the idea that Japan deserved a seat. Uh, we, the foreign ministry spokesman said, we understand Japan's aspiration to play a greater role in international affairs. In the spring of 2005, uh, then Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice said that the United States unambiguously supports a permanent seat for Japan on the UN Security Council. And Kofi Annan said that those who contribute most, read Japan, should be given increased involvement uh, in decision-making. These two statements uh, really galvanized China to take a greater uh, role in trying to derail Tokyo's strategy, as was certainly perceived by the Japanese side. China was taking the steps to undermine Japan's bid. What did China do? First, the Chinese government gave permission uh, informally to the internet petition opposing Japan's bid for the UN Security Council, ultimately acquiring some 22 million signatures. Once this petition uh, began spreading like wildfire online, activists of the kind that I talked to began organizing small-scale street protests, not uh, the marches that went across the city, but these sort of maybe a few dozen activists collecting signatures uh, in person. Then, once it became clear that these were uh, acceptable, the large-scale protest marches of the kinds that made the New York Times uh, began moving. In this case, this is a picture of the April 9th protest in Beijing where 
students and others started at the university district in northwest Beijing, moved some 20 kilometers across the city, uh, ending outside the Japanese embassy. In Shanghai, uh, businesses were vandalized. Uh, the Japanese consulate was you know, smeared with eggs and other sorts of things. These became quite uh, raucous and, and violent at times. And this progression from the online petitions to the small-scale street petitions to these large-scale protest marches, which drew 10 to 20,000 people in some of the largest cases, I think illustrates these escalating costs of potentially suppressing uh, the demonstrations and this tendency for protests when they begin to then quickly gain momentum, if not uh, told to stop. What then happens after the protests? Uh, beginning uh, in early April, the United States uh, came out and said that it opposed a swift decision on UN Security Council reform. And on April 11th, uh, Ambassador Bolton, in his Senate confirmation hearing, said it would be very difficult for Japan to succeed given what was going on in China over the weekend, referring to these Chinese protests. On April 12th, the Chinese Prime uh, Minister came out uh, and took a tougher stance, the toughest stance to date, uh, opposing Japan's bid. Quite a change from the sort of vaguely sympathetic position the foreign ministry had taken uh, in that fall. On April 18th, here's the Japanese concession, the Japanese Prime Minister Koizumi uh, presented an olive branch suggesting that at their summit it would be better not to make it an exchange of accusations. The government then acted to curtail the protests uh, nationwide. And finally, in early August, the United States and China, the two uh, permanent representatives met uh, and agreed that they should oppose the G4 proposal. This slide is meant to illustrate the timing of the protests. First, you have the internet petition is the, the solid black line, followed by the two different bars. First, the street petitions, followed by uh, the protest marches in dark blue. And what I've put here along the top are those, uh, essentially the milestones, the, what happened. First, you had uh, Condoleezza Rice and Kofi Annan's statement suggesting that uh, for the first time, the United States unambiguously supported Japan's uh, bid for a Security Council uh, seat. You had then the internet petition taking off sharply. This is as was covered by uh, one of the commercial uh, net portals, Sina.com. Shortly after the internet petition took off, you had the eruption of the small-scale petitions uh, and the protest marches, which then, following uh, John Bolton's statement, suggested it may be difficult for Japan to get a seat and Wen Jiaobao's statement saying that China uh, definitely opposed it. You had uh, Koizumi's concession and then the nationwide curtailment of protests. And if I extended this chart over, you would see the dozens of protests that the Chinese government prevented uh, that were scheduled for the May 1st holiday. Again, I think this uh, illustrates <coughs> the importance of timing, that once China had gotten satisfaction at the international level, it seemed like um, momentum for reform had sort of ground to a halt. Uh, some of the key players had suggested that this was a no-go. It's certainly not something that uh, we should move forward with uh, in any hurry. The Chinese government curtailed the protests uh, and prevented uh, further ones from occurring. Evidence from this case study, I think, also uh, illustrates the risk 
uh, of losing control and some of the other mechanisms. First, uh, in an interview with a policeman, uh, he suggested that the troublemakers uh, also carry boycott Japan banners, that nationalism is often used as a protective cloak uh, for uh, other forms of dissent, and that there will be a small minority, people intent on destruction and inciting the masses to make trouble. The case study, I think, also illustrates uh, that in Japan and other uh, foreign uh, audiences that this risk was quite apparent. Uh, here, uh, one of the Japanese newspapers suggested that anti-Japanese protests could turn easily to criticism of the government for being weak-kneed and develop into anti-government demonstrations, potentially uh, drawing in uh, opponents of the regime from other sectors, including labor groups uh, and farmers. Here's a uh, cartoon that was featured in the Hong Kong uh, paper, which suggests that if you see uh, in the first frame, you have the little communist party sitting atop the giant panda. He's holding a torch, a torch of public rage against Japan. In the second frame, here you've got the communist party still sitting on top of the panda, but now the lighter of public rage is turned <coughs> against the government. I think this encapsulates this, particularly this risk that things will get out of hand. As far as the public's uh, concern, this quote suggests that the government isn't able uh, to simply disregard uh, public opinion and that genuinely people online elsewhere feel sincerely about these issues. This is not simply a top-down story. Here, you have an Edison posting to the Patriots Alliance Network saying that if the government doesn't veto Japan's permanent membership, we will know in our hearts that the government is weak and useless. How can the government continue to rule and hold up its head, losing face for the Chinese people? Perhaps because of this public pressure, uh, foreign ministry uh, officials stated that the government had to respond or it would be seen as soft and weak. And if it didn't take a stand on the UN Security Council issue, it would lose public confidence. And this is this mechanism where by allowing protests into the streets, you really created an issue that's hugely salient uh, and one which, if the government is seen as backing down, even in an autocratic context where there are no elections, uh, nonetheless, uh, these sort of so-called audience costs could come back to bite the regime. Some of these uh, anecdotes also suggest that, in fact, the government uh, was quite uh, aware and, uh, in fact, quite happy to use this risk uh, that protests would get out of hand in its uh, bargaining with Japan and the United States. Here, the Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesman publicly stated that if, as to how to prevent the situation from getting out of control, this is something the Japanese side needs to conduct earnest self-examination. An anti-Japanese activist, many of them in my conversations with them were very aware of the sort of symbiotic relationship that they have with the government, which is to say that uh, they depend upon the government to create the space in which they can protest. But on the other hand, uh, they're very aware that that space is easily closed when it no longer suits the government's interest. Here, he said that uh, the government uses us when it suits them, and when it doesn't, they suppress us. In that way, the government can play the public opinion card. Japan is a democracy, respects public opinion, so even in a place like China, the government can still point to the public's feelings. The government's hand 
in the protests was real. Uh, this was not a p- picture, however, that appeared on the front of the New York Times. This was something that uh, an emb- a consular official in Shanghai gave me. And if this was the only uh, way in which the protests were perceived, it suggests that the government was really directing things. This does not capture the other half of the story, which is that protests could and did, in some sense, go beyond uh, the scale of what the Chinese government wanted. Um, this is, in fact, their attempt to kind of keep it in line to prevent the protests from going and trashing all the Japanese businesses or um, potentially leading to the government buildings. So there, this is an important slide, but I don't want you to come away with this thinking that, oh, it was all 100% directed by the Chinese government. So in summary, uh, the case study, I think, has provided strong evidence in support of the three predictions I laid out earlier. First is that the protests uh, led to a more favorable international bargain on the issue of uh, UN Security Council reform and in China's bilateral relations with Japan. With Japan, uh, Koizumi made a historic apology for Japan's misdeeds uh, at a multilateral forum uh, and did not press China for an apology given all the destruction uh, that happened outside of Japanese diplomatic buildings and uh, businesses inside of China. And that with regard to the United States, the position taken by uh, the Bush administration moved from one of unambiguous support to uh, this joint opposition with China, not opposing Japan per se, but opposing the package reform, the G4 proposal that Japan uh, was part of. Secondly, uh, the Chinese government took a much more hawkish stance uh, in the wake of the protests, moving from uh, that vague expression of uh, understanding to outright opposition. And then finally, uh, the timing of the protests, I think, uh, suggests that they were viewed as having this uh, international benefit and they were in some sense used as a bargaining tactic. First, they were uh, turned on uh, when it became apparent that there was momentum uh, really building. This was the high tide of reform. That it was actually possible that Japan could get the two-thirds uh, support for that G4 proposal and putting China in a very difficult position. But that once that subsided, once China got the United States, other countries, including Southeast Asia and Africa, uh, to oppose it, um, then the Chinese government acted uh, to prevent further protests. Having gotten that satisfaction, China didn't need to bring in the tanks. They were happy to go home because China had declared victory. I think the case study also uh, illustrates some of the shortcomings of the two alternatives that I presented at the beginning, which is uh, first, the idea that these were completely spontaneous and the government had no ability to prevent them. Uh, I think ignores uh, the role that I've documented that the government took uh, in allowing these uh, to happen in the first place. You can contrast the 2005 petition against the UN Security Council reform with uh, a bullet train petition in 2004 where netizens launched a petition to oppose the use of Japanese uh, bullet train technology. 24 hours after that petition appeared online, it was shut down by the government. Here, uh, I think the anti-Japanese activists uh, in 2005 uh, was reported as having been told by the government that this was a spontaneous event. Therefore, the people leading the movement uh, should have no role and they should stay at home because this was supposed to be spontaneous. Second, I think it uh, sheds light on the, sort of the shortcomings of this idea that protests were entirely manufactured uh, by the government because this ignores the risk 
that the protests could, even though they were allowed initially by the government, could still uh, blow back and turn against the government. In the words of a Japanese uh, official, that it's one thing to take off the lid to let off pressure, but if you can't get that lid back on, what good uh, did you really do? Finally, uh, I think it's important, uh, given we, you know, we wonder what's going to happen with China, to look at uh, a comparison with Hong Kong. Uh, Hong Kong is, uh, in some ways, can be treated as a democratic China, uh, even though it's not a fully electoral democracy. Uh, nonetheless, uh, the freedoms of speech and um, particularly uh, protest are protected there. Uh, and here, so the main difference is that uh, this regime-type variable, um, Hong Kong in many ways shared a lot of China's experiences, sh- shared uh, a history of Japanese occupation, uh, which was qualitatively similar, whereas, uh, say, South Korea and Taiwan uh, wouldn't uh, be quite as fit comparisons given the nature of Japan's occupation. Uh, there are, of course, some uh, confounding variables, and most no, you know, remarkably the, the size uh, of the, the two being compared. Hong Kong has some 7 million people, China 1.3 billion. Um, but this, uh, in a minute I'll show you that Hong Kong has far more anti-Japanese protests than all of China, uh, which is surprising given this uh, sheer difference in size. Also uh, surprising given that uh, China has, uh, in the last two decades, embarked on sort of a steady uh, diet of patriotic education um, to try to uh, instill sort of patriotic uh, values and such, uh, given the sort of decline of communism uh, as an ideology and the sort of the erosion of legitimacy following the crackdown at Tiananmen. So here, uh, the data that I've collected, uh, I look, I've looked um, back to 1978, but with the handover of Hong Kong in 1997 as sort of a more relevant uh, comparison, um, here I've collected 66 cases of anti-Japanese protest in Hong Kong compared with 41 in mainland China. And above the red bar are five cases of prevented protests that I was uh, able to co- uh, collect uh, in this case. And I think... I mean, I don't want to overplay this comparison, but what it mainly suggests is a baseline for what we would expect uh, anti-foreign or anti-Japanese protests to look like in China absent uh, the regime's intervention. And so what this suggests is that, first, these are not primarily manufactured by the government. If they were, we would see far more uh, than the sort of baseline uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, It also does not suggest that these are purely grassroots uh, phenomenon. Uh, given the prevented protests uh, that I collected uh, and the far higher um, rate in Hong Kong. So to wrap up, uh, what I've tried to suggest uh, is first that through the mechanism of anti-foreign protests, autocrats like Democrats are able to leverage domestic politics uh, in their international bargaining, that they're able to reveal information about their resolve and tie their hands uh, in international bargaining, And then I've also tried to illuminate uh, the pattern of nationalist protest in China, which is that the government sometimes allows these protests to occur, but at other times chooses to nip them in the bud. And the analogy that I like to use here uh, is of an orchestra conductor. That the conductor is up there, he's not making the music, but he is leading the musicians. Um, But if you've ever been to uh, a middle school or high school orchestra concert, you know that the conductor is not really in charge as the musicians uh, race away with the tempo. 
Finally, uh, I think the project suggests that audience costs are, uh, while they may exist, they are not unique to democracies. And this then uh, brings into question whether or not audience costs can be uh, a good explanation for what uh, scholars have seen as the democratic advantage. Finally, uh, as regards to state-society relations in China, uh, I think the the project has uh, shed light on uh, the ways in which activists operate in relationship to the government in this sort of symbiotic relationship that I described. And then as regards anti-Americanism and other forms of extremism around the world, other autocrats in Iran, Syria, Egypt, and Pakistan, the project suggests that indeed there are a lot of incentives for autocrats to nurture these uh, extremist or nationalist sentiments because there are international benefits uh, to doing so. Nonetheless, it suggests that these anti-foreign sentiments are not uh, beyond the reach of diplomacy or state management. So uh, with that silver lining, I'd like to end and thank you.